This is Fordham Conversations. I'm Nora Flaherty. This Wednesday, when I read the news that President Bush was looking to spend $30 billion over the next several years to fight AIDS in the developing world, I remembered back to when I was a kid and AIDS had just started to hit the mainstream. The earliest cases of HIV infection that we know about are actually surprisingly early, in 1959, 1969, and 1976. But in 1981, you might say that the AIDS era really began with the diagnosis of five Los Angeles men with the infection that most of us know as pneumocystis pneumonia. By the late 1980s, when I was a teenager, fear of AIDS had become a major feature of my and my friends' lives. But then treatments for HIV that were at least somewhat effective began to come along. And somehow we all stopped worrying so much about AIDS. In the United States, retroviral drugs make it possible for a lot of people to live reasonably well with HIV. But in a lot of places, those drugs are not widely available. And in many of those places, the culture that surrounds HIV and AIDS is very, very different from our own. One of those places is South Africa, where around 5.5 million people are infected with HIV. That's more than any other country in the world. In spite of the country's high rates of infection, many people say that the South African government hasn't taken any kind of a lead on preventing transmission of the disease or on treating those who already have it. They say the government's lack of action is so extreme as to be considered a human rights issue. And groups like the Treatment Action Campaign and the AIDS Law Project are taking it on as one. My guest on Fordham Conversations today is Brian Hunterman. Hunterman's the first recipient of the James E. Tolan Fellowship in International Human Rights. During that one-year fellowship from the Crowley Program in International Human Rights at Fordham Law School, Hunterman will work with the Treatment Action Campaign and the AIDS Law Project on their campaigns to get the South African government to work toward preventing and treating AIDS. Throughout the show today, we'll be hearing the voices of people from around the world whose lives have been affected by AIDS. But first, Brian Hunterman, welcome. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Now, you've been to South Africa, which most of us can't say we have and you've seen that country's AIDS epidemic firsthand. What's it like there? Well, I mean, uh, it's interesting because the, largely the area where I was in South Africa was in Cape Town, um, where the the work I was doing is working with people who are HIV positive, but it's sort of less predominant, not less predominant in Cape Town, but the, you don't see the, the impact quite as clearly. When you go out to some of the townships like Kailitra, those areas, you you sort of see it in relation with poverty uh, much more up close. The Treatment Action Campaign where I was working has an office in the township of Kailisha, uh, which is a combination office with TAC and Doctors Without Borders, where they are attempting to provide antiretrovirals in limited resource areas. And, and that project is sort of enlightening to see, but very difficult at the same time you are working with a lot of people who are HIV positive. And if they aren't getting medications, you know what the end result of that is always going to be. But, I mean, you can also look at it in sort of the infuriating way through just sort of mortality statistics. If you look at mortality statistics in South Africa from 1997 through about 2004, you see this enormous increase in the number of 30 to 34-year-olds in particular who are dying every year, and particularly 30 to 34-year-old women, where the number of 30 to 34-year-old women dying every year has increased by 321% over the course of seven years. Uh, and that's just that's an absurd rate uh, to, to sort of watch. 
occur within a country like South Africa. My name is Louisa Maria and I'm 20 years old. I'm married. My husband's name is Connie. I live in Namibia. I'm a peer educator. When I go out to youth, my main focus is that I share with them and tell them that HIV can affect them or they can also be infected with HIV. And I'm concentrating on that because I know that many of them are sexually active and at the same time they don't think of that they might get infected with this virus. I'm living with the virus for my fifth year now. I just want to share with now, them. Now to share with them that it is not easy to live with a virus because you face, you face a lot of challenges. I lost my parents, my family, not that they have died, but they don't want to have to do anything with me. So I lost them. I lost my friends. I lost my school. I think that our leaders should know that young people are the leaders of tomorrow and that we as young people, we feel that we have been very much neglected. Young people are very good when they are together and they are very powerful when they are together. So there should be a plan how to get them because they, they can't do it alone. They need some help somewhere. One of the things that you've worked on is uh, getting prisoners in South Africa access to medication. Tell me about that. Um, yeah, there there was a lawsuit brought by the Treatment Action Campaign and the AIDS Law Project in a prison called the Westville Correctional Center, which is just uh, outside Durban. And the lawsuit was brought on behalf of 15 HIV-positive prisoners and then also all similarly situated, so essentially a class action on behalf of all HIV-positive prisoners in the Westville Correctional Center. And that lawsuit was really about getting those prisoners access to treatment while they are in prison um, because they had not been receiving any treatment, despite not being free to even go attempt to get it on their own. There's also been rampant tuberculosis within the prison, uh, which is another issue that just needs treatment. And so the, the lawsuit was brought, and the South African government has fought it to some extent, claiming, one, that they've already been providing treatment even though they hadn't been. The The case was actually decided and has still sort of been going through the appeal process. The, the advantage now that this case seems to be going forward and seems like the, the South African government is going to lose on it, that, that the, the AIDS activists will win, the the benefit of this is being able to take it around to other prisons and sort of flag it as if you force us to bring this lawsuit against you, we are going to win on it. And and that's a, a very important uh, thing to be able to do. So how does this relate to the issues that are facing the whole, you know, the larger HIV positive population in South Africa? In, in prison, HIV is still spread either via rape or, or just normal homosexual intercourse in the prison. And when those prisoners either get released or, or uh, see their families again, you can see sort of transmission there to their families and on and on and on. This is all part of attempting to stem the spread of HIV anywhere where it's being spread. And prisons are certainly one of those locations. It's also a area where we can specifically target the South African government to say, you are responsible for these people because they are in your direct control. They are in prison. You have control over their activities.
You are listening to Fordham Conversations on WFUV 90.7 and WFUV.org. I'm Nora Flaherty. The week before finals at school, my friend calls me on my cell phone while I'm riding the subway. I'm thinking I'm going to get this big, fat, juicy piece of gossip because his voice is unassuming and proud. He tells me that he had sex with someone he knew was HIV positive, without protection. I can't say anything right away. He's all happy because I don't yell at him. I swallow and whisper, I told you I wasn't going to get mad. Then the next day, at lunch, I start crying into my turkey and mustard sandwich. My tears mix with the mustard and drop on my shirt. My friend from art class tries to get me to talk, and I won't. She thinks some evil girl done broke my heart. And I let her keep thinking that. But in my mind, I fast forward through my other friend's life, imagining what will happen if he gets infected with HIV. Then I rewind through my own life, back to when I was a kid, when someone I loved fell victim to AIDS. I can't forget the anger, the confusion, to watch a man in his early 30s die of pneumonia because his immune system couldn't fight back. All traces of life faded away like paint in the rain. His warm brown skin, glistening smile, the muscular arms that once held me had deteriorated. Our family friend was transformed into a pasty, stained, shrunken man in a hospital bed. He wore the same size clothes that I did, and I was only ten years old. His bones stuck through his skin coat like death. Of course, his soul will go on forever, bright and more beautiful than his physical body ever was. I wonder why we sleep with people without protection. The only way to keep myself from crying over what AIDS can do to a young, healthy body is to think of the strong spirit, which will never fade away. That was Leah Chapel Stingley from Youth Radio in Berkeley, California. During the interview, we also heard from Livy Van Wick from Namibia, her story from UNICEF Radio. I'm talking today on the show with Brian Hunterman. Hunterman's a recent Fordham Law graduate who's received a one-year fellowship to work on AIDS prevention and treatment issues in South Africa. Let's continue our conversation. I think one thing that springs to my mind and may spring to the minds of others is, well, South Africa is not really a particularly rich country. Are they not tackling this because it's a money issue? Is it a money issue? There's certainly a a resource problem uh, involved. I mean, the lowest cost treatments that are available uh, now that are sort of generic treatments coming out of either India or Thailand, you can get for as low as $132 per person per year which is a a lesser cost. But as those medications become less effective in the future, what you'll see is patients having to go from what what are called the first-line antiretroviral therapies, which these cheaper generic versions are, to sort of second- and third-line treatments, where your cost can go up exponentially, you know, up to $2,500 per person per year. And so that is a real concern that... Um, we need to be aware of. But money isn't the only problem. Another big problem is that um, until recently and to some extent, I guess, still now, the government in South Africa has been kind of wavering on whether or not they were even going to say that HIV caused AIDS and whether it should be treated with antiretroviral drugs. Tell me about AIDS denialism and how that came about and what exactly it is and what's going on with it today. There's been sort of a long history of AIDS denialism, and one of the sort of the 
quintessential depressing moments in South Africa was when President Mbeki publicly questioned the idea that HIV causes AIDS. That questioning has caused an enormous sort of ripple effect throughout the, the population of South Africa that brings into question whether people are going to actually seek treatment even though, that they, sh- even though they should be. Had the government taken real leadership on these issues, uh, the population would be moving forward, I think, at a much faster rate. And yes, you're right, you're right to indicate that there's some sort of changes going on, and we have yet to see what will really happen with those. Um, at the Toronto conference in August of last year, the South African government uh, and the Minister of Health, uh, Mantu, was dealt a, a fairly serious rebuke by the international community for its policies on HIV. Why would you think that HIV didn't cause AIDS at this point in time? Some of the questioning has come around particularly that it's a way for Western pharmaceutical companies to make a lot of money out of the African continent. And while certainly pharmaceutical companies are making money, that in no way affects the science that HIV does directly cause AIDS over a period of time. And part of it is just sort of that conspiracy theory that goes on in people's minds. And I I understand that AIDS denialism is not something that's unique to South Africa. Is that true? Yeah. And I mean, the AIDS denialist position has actually been documented in a lot of places in the United States as well. Um, Some of the first documents or first reports on AIDS denialism, the questioning of HIV causing AIDS, came out of Berkeley through a number of reports and a number of scientific supposedly scientific studies, um, none of which have ever been really accepted by the general uh, scientific community. And you can certainly see why if you were a politician in South Africa or a person in South Africa who was HIV positive, you might sort of want to say, oh, it is a conspiracy or it doesn't cause it doesn't cause AIDS. But what are people doing to make themselves healthy instead of taking these drugs? The problem is there really isn't a whole lot that you can do to treat HIV other than taking antiretrovirals. I mean, certainly a good nutritious diet, those sorts of things that everybody should really be be doing helps sort of prolong your life and prolong your immune system, but it's not a treatment for HIV. And one of the other major problems that we've seen come up in South Africa and in other places around the world are people who claim to be doctors or people who claim to have cures for HIV either via traditional medicines or vitamin supplements go around telling the population that you don't need to take antiretrovirals. You can just take my vitamin supplement or these other sort of concoctions that people have made claiming that they are cured to HIV, which has actually been another lawsuit that... Uh, the Treatment Action Campaign has brought, particularly against a man named Matthias Rath, who has publicly claimed that the Treatment Action Campaign is merely a front for the pharmaceutical industry, which is blatantly not true. But Matthias Rath is a vitamin uh, salesman who goes around claiming to have a cure for HIV. This may seem like an obvious question, but how is AIDS denialism affecting people on the ground? When when you're in a situation where you don't have access to the treatment that you genuinely need, it creates sort of this beacon of hope to be able to look and say, no, but if HIV doesn't cause AIDS, then I'm not really sick and I'm I'm not actually going to die of this. And I think that 
sort of appeal to hope causes people to not not pay attention to the actual science, but to hope that there's a chance of survival out of this, even without access to antiretrovirals. And it's it's also affecting their ability to get these things anyway, because the government's not really making the kind of moves that it could to distribute them? Absolutely. What's the situation with uh, private health care in South Africa? Um, private health care is expensive. Most people can't afford it. So uh, to the extent that it is available, it is providing antiretrovirals. I mean, what, you know, uh, Edwin Cameron, who's a, a judge in South Africa, is one of the first public figures who have ever actually come out and claimed and and uh, stated openly that he is HIV positive, um, has regularly stated the only reason he is still alive today is because he has the financial ability to go out and procure drugs on his own, um, which the vast majority of people cannot. So the government would really have to be distributing these things or providing ways for them to be distributed. Yes. This is Fordham Conversations on WFUV 90.7 and WFUV.org. I'm Nora Flaherty. Uh, my name is uh, Irina Kalinichenko. I live uh, in uh, Cherkass, Ukraine. Uh, I'm 21 years old. I've been living with HIV for three years. Several years ago, like the majority of my peers, I thought that HIV didn't relate to me. We saw it as more of a problem for other countries. But now we see that Ukraine has the fastest growing rate of HIV in Europe. We have 84,000 HIV-positive people and more than 10,000 children born to HIV-positive women. These are official statistics, but all experts estimate that real numbers are 10 times higher. The life of an HIV person is extremely difficult in my country, and children are the most affected. Often, we face stigma and intolerance, and as a result, a lot of children don't attend school. I work for the HIV service organization, All Ukrainian Network of People Living with HIV AIDS. Our organization established a daycare center for HIV-positive families. In our community, we also established cell support groups, and we provide care and support for HIV-positive children, as well as counseling and advocacy of rights for HIV-positive children. I spend a lot of time talking with school children and telling them about HIV-AIDS and the ways which they can get it. My experience shows that when children obtain information, not from the media, but from real people, the message becomes more powerful. World leaders should understand that HIV can knock at everyone's door. It's not only our problem, and therefore we should act together. Irina's story from UNICEF Radio. Just ahead this morning on Cityscape, a look at the challenges and rewards of foster parenting and adoption in New York City. That's Cityscape with George Bodarki this morning at 7.30 on WFUV. My guest today on Fordham Conversations is Brian Hunterman. This fall, Hunterman will begin a one-year fellowship working with AIDS organizations in South Africa. We're also hearing today on the show from people around the world whose lives have been affected by AIDS. Let's return now for the conclusion of my conversation with Brian Hunterman. Now, as a lawyer or a soon-to-be lawyer, you are going to be doing this human rights work from a legal perspective. You're going to be doing legal work for the next year. Why is legal work useful here? Um, Particularly when you're in the face of 
an overwhelming problem such as this and specific governmental denial, legal frameworks allow us to force the government to uphold what they are already obligated to do. The Westville prison case is a, a sort of perfect example of that. The government in the Constitution has a right to health, particularly for prisoners as well. And when the government isn't providing antiretrovirals to HIV-positive prisoners, they're not upholding that right. And so through the legal framework, by bringing lawsuits, we can compel the government to start providing treatment. When you do prove that, that laws have been broken and that rights have been violated, what's the next step? How do you actually use that to get the government of South Africa to do what you want them to do? I mean, that's always one of the hard part. What's the remedy to human rights violations, um, particularly when there are these more um, positive obligations on the government? Um, it's different when a government is sort of engaged in, in behavior that's that's killing citizens or something like that, where we can just tell them to stop. It's harder when we have to compel them to actually proactively do something. Now, the Westville Prison case, to go back to that again, there's a fairly easy way to go about that in which we tell the government, there, here are a number of HIV-positive prisoners who are in your direct control. You have the resources to at least provide them with medications. So you have to do that. And the court can grant that sort of remedy. It's harder in sort of the general, every HIV-positive person in South Africa to say, you have to provide treatment. Because it's sort of, it's it's that resources question and it's a harder group to identify, and it's a larger policy problem. What sorts of programs are currently uh, being implemented by the government to prevent HIV transmission and to help people who have HIV and AIDS live longer? There is a destigmatization campaign out there, and there is a campaign to sort of make people aware of how HIV transmission takes place. Whether it's really up to what we would hope it's at, uh, or we would like to see it be at is another question, but they they have taken sort of at least that portion of activism forward to try and in, at least inform people of how to prevent transmission. I had heard about abstinence-only programs being advocated for um, in various countries, and I know they're often tied to aid and such. But are is that a thing in South Africa? It's definitely there in the background, but it hasn't, I don't think, had the impact in South Africa that it's had in like Botswana, where the abstinence-only education really took over a lot of the the the, pro, the HIV program that the government had in place. And how effective are those programs? Um, yeah, abstinence-only programs are not effective. You know, the the programs that we really need to be talking about are comprehensive programs. If you look at what the government of Brazil has done, which has been a much more comprehensive program, providing condom distribution, very substantial education, and providing universal access to antiretrovirals, that program has been enormously successful and is not based on abstinence-only education. In South Africa, with regard to HIV and AIDS, what needs to happen? Um, I, again, I think it's a lot of issues. Uh, the first is access to medications is an enormous problem. There needs to be a comprehensive plan put in place that sort of works a prevention angle, works a destigmatization angle, an education angle, and then support angle as well as then access to treatment. All of those really need to be addressed for a comprehensive program to really go into effect. 
What needs to happen sort of on an on-the-ground level among people? Part of it is people need to start demanding access, demanding that the government uphold their rights. Uh, I think that's one major thing, um, seeing sort of the large social movements that, that we would like to see. And other than that, you know, doing their own work to find out how HIV is spread, uh, making sure that they're taking advantage of the literature that's out there that's put out by a number of different organizations in South Africa. Well, Brian Hunterman, thank you so much. No problem. Thank you for interviewing me. That was Brian Hunterman. He's a recipient of the first ever James E. Tolan Fellowship in International Human Rights. That fellowship comes from the Crowley Program in International Human Rights at Fordham Law School. If you'd like to know more about them, their website is crowleyprogram.org. This is Fordham Conversations on WFUV 90.7 and WFUV.org. I'm Nora Flaherty. We'll close the show today with an essay from Out Loud Radio's Max Singh. It's part of the series, That's My Song. Hi, my name is Max Hing. I'm a 12th grader at George Washington High School, and I am a youth outreach worker and a member of our Gay Street Alliance at George Washington High School. My song, my favorite song, oh, God. Well, right now, it'd probably have to be David Bowie's Under Pressure with Queen, Freddie Mercury. <laughs> It's just whenever I hear that song, it it reminds me that the human race is in this world together. And it kind of reminds me of like the AIDS crisis and what happened to Freddie Mercury. He, he died of AIDS. also reminds me of my cousin's father, who was a gay man in the 1970s, and he wasn't out. When he did come out around that time, he was still a good father, but he was like a kid in a candy store, kind of, in the Castro, and not a lot of info was out about AIDS. I mean, it was considered the gay cancer, but they did not necessarily know what caused AIDS. And so he was having a lot of fun, and he contracted it, and he died later. And my cousin grew up without a father.
always, you know, I always thought that if more people at that time, you know, cared about each other, um, even the, you know, the queer community. I just think if that they'd been more interested in sooner and had informed the public that maybe my cousin would still have her father here today. And that's what David Bowie's song reminds me of. Don't let our differences separate us but unite us. You know, give love one more chance. <laughs> That story from Out Loud Radio in San Francisco, California. From WFUV, this has been Fordham Conversations. The show is now available as a podcast. If you're interested in subscribing or if you'd like to learn more about it, you can click on podcast at our webpage, wfuv.org. You can also listen online in our audio archives at wfuv.org. And if you'd like to drop us a line with any questions or comments about the show, we have a new email address. It's Fordham Conversations at WFUV.org. I'm Nora Flaherty. Cityscape is next. Thank you for listening and have a fabulous weekend. This is WFUV 90.7 and WFUV.org.